words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I was just sitting up there listening and thinking how much I miss good conversations like the one you were just having. <laughs> I think there are an awful lot of adults in the congregation who are typically very grateful for those conversations. Simple terms, energy and enthusiasm, diversions, distractions. <laughs> But I got to tell you, the group this morning at this service was far more animated than those at the early service. Uh, don't you say a lot more energy, maybe? Yeah. One more question. It's good to be with you, friends. Um, every time I come to Christ Church, I'm reminded of other times I've been here. Um, the first time I was here was the Sunday after my ordination, like the very next day. And I got to do some things as bishop that I'd never done anywhere else before, and uh, you were all pretty patient with me. Paul was an assistant at that time, and he helped point me in the right directions in terms of the things I needed to do and where they were, and I remember not too much longer after that coming back and celebrating when he was instituted as rector, and I remember a conversation I'll leave between he and I that we had as we walked out after the end of that service. By the way, it's uh, eight years ago this month that I was ordained as bishop and made that visit here to Christ Church. And if I've done my math right, yesterday the church ordained the 65th bishop since my ordination eight years ago. I'm one of the old ones now, in case you didn't notice that. Long time ones. The last time I was here for Sunday morning, though, was not inside these walls. It was outside in, in the garden during COVID as you and congregations around the diocese and the country adjusted your patterns and made choices about how to be together safely in a way that was comfortable for your members. Um, I've been in the church since then. Certainly Paul had shown me around a couple of times, but I was also here for Suzanne's ordination on a Saturday morning, but it's good to be back on a Sunday morning and to be with you inside this space. COVID was, amongst other things, a great challenge for leaders, clergy, vestries, wardens, for all of us in our own common life, but in the life of the congregation, there were difficult decisions and choices to be made. And in the midst of all that, you decided to refit the church. Um, not like there probably wasn't enough else to do. But you know, that seemed pretty smart to take advantage of a time when the building was largely unoccupied to do the work you'd been planning on doing and the work you needed to do. And I must say it's beautiful. And even without the microphones, I, found, I find the sound bounces nicely and it's, it's lively. It's good to be with you for Sunday morning worship. This is a Sunday which has a number of different names that can be given. In our Book of Common Prayer, we call this the last Sunday after Pentecost. Well, in case you don't remember this far back, the day of Pentecost this year was Sunday, June the 5th. And every week since then, we've measured Sundays after Pentecost. We just keep going and going, and it's the longest season in our church year. Others will call this the Feast of Christ the King. When we remember that uh, Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords and King of Kings over the heavens and the earth, and we heard some of that language in our, in our hymns and in our scripture readings. Others will use language of the reign of Christ to sort of soften that idea of kings. Some of the Im images that are associated with this, um, this day um, are a little bit difficult for some, or certainly limited in some other ways. 
as one who was born in Canada and lived there for a good part of my life, but have now lived in this country for 18 years, I'm often fascinated at how much Americans seem to care about British royalty. Because I thought you all tossed them off a while back. <laughs> the G was even taken out of the word Kinston in the town where I live. I haven't sung, I don't know if I've sung out loud yet, God Save the King, but I sure spent a lot of time singing God, God Save the Queen. Some people find the language of King difficult, not just because of issues of British American history, but because of the suggestion that when we call Jesus King or we speak of God in those terms, it's high, lofty, removed, distant, and not very close to our own experience of, of how we may have encountered God in our own lives. Others will find the language a little bit limiting if we emphasize the kingship of Jesus, the lordship of Jesus in isolation. So I find that the language is, for some of this, of this day, the Feast of Christ the King, um, confusing or dissatisfying or some other things, I'm sure. And our scriptures actually offer us some interesting ways of expanding or broadening the image and the language that we have for Jesus. And I, I just want to point you to those a little bit. I, I love the language in the um, reading of the letter to the Colossians, which includes, amongst other things, these words. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. I, I really don't believe that God is fully invisible, although I firmly believe that God is beyond our comprehension. We can have a glimpse of God. We can have an experience of God. We can, we can see, feel, hear something that reminds us of God or makes us think of God in a new way for the first time. And yet, essentially, none of us can fully see God. And the language that we use to try to define or describe our experience of God is necessarily limited. In any time that any one of us thinks we've captured God in words, um, we probably better be reminded that we need to go back and try a little harder. Because God can't be fully captured that way. God is beyond the comprehension of our minds, and all we can do is paint pictures and write poetry and share images of the way in which we have experienced God. Even the best I would say the best religious language includes mystery and unknowing. But we understand and believe as followers of Jesus that Jesus comes as close as we can possibly imagine to representing that which is essentially invisible, to representing God. I like the letter to the Colossians because it goes on to speak of some of the ways that we understand God and can find God present in the person of Jesus. But I also recognize that my approach and experience of faith will be different than that that many of you would describe. This is language that's full of theology, or as some might call it, gobbledygook. And I won't try to go any further in explaining or unpacking it, but if you want to spend some time in reflection or meditation, this is a great passage. This is a great passage. Let, let, it, let it pour over you, let it inspire you, let it and stretch your imagination. We also have a passage from the book of the prophet Jeremiah in which the Lord is describing the dissatisfaction he is experiencing, if you could call it that, 
with the poor shepherds, the people that are not leading their flocks well, the people who might be seeking after their own interest or advantage and not paying enough attention to the sheep, and so the sheep are, are scattered. The sheep are lost. The sheep are without the one whom they need. And again, through Jeremiah, um, the Lord is saying um, that I will come and I myself will gather the remnant. And in the language that follows, goes on to speak of caring for the sheep. So that the sheep need not fear all of the things that they are facing. And I'm not sure about you, but it's easy for me to imagine this language from Jeremiah and put it together with language from John's Gospel when Jesus says, I am the Good Shepherd. We know this 23rd Psalm, and we typically use that at the center of our worship on one of the Sundays in the season of Easter where again we hear about the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I can easily connect with the image of Jesus as shepherd, as one who cares for us, binds up our wounds, protects us from the enemy, leads us to safe pasture, cares for us. There is imagery in Psalm 23 which is forever powerful for me around the time of death. The valley of the shadow of evil and how it is that we can disperse or at least turn away from the shadows. So Jesus offers us um, the language of I am the good shepherd, and we can tie it to this language in the voice of God from Jeremiah. We can find language about shepherds hopeful, helpful, even if we ourselves have never known a shepherd. Now, years ago, when I served a group of three rural congregations in southwestern Ontario, we had an award-winning shepherd in the congregation. He and his brother and their father before them took sheep that they raised to a national fair that happened every winter in Toronto, and inevitably they came home with prizes. Well, one Sunday I asked this shepherd, now, you know, could, it, it's that Sunday when we're going to read um, Psalm 23. Could you bring one of the little sheep? one of the lambs to church so we can sort of have that focus. And he looked at me and says, you've never been around sheep, have you? <laughs> so I, I think your laughter suggests you know what he knew that I didn't know at that younger age in my life. They make a mess and they're noisy. But still, the image of shepherd has, I think, some power and meaning and hopefulness for some of us. Then we get the gospel reading, and I think if we had that alone, we might wonder why it had been picked relative to a Sunday when we say Christ is King. Because in this gospel passage, we hear of Jesus as a failure, at least in the eyes of the world. We hear that Jesus has been sentenced to death. We hear of the soldiers who are nailing him to the cross and of the criminals who are hung with him. And there's not too many of us in this life who would naturally choose to associate ourselves with someone whose life is coming to that conclusion. It might be like his followers. We, we would be along with him up until a certain point. But then we might find ourselves separating and stepping back. Why should we follow one who is condemned by the powers of his world? The soldiers said to him, save yourself. They figured if he was the king of Jews, he, he could just jump down off the cross and look after them with no problems. Or maybe he would have some of his followers come with swords and, and fight for him. If he was the king of the Jews, he'd have an army. He wouldn't be submitting to death as a criminal. One of the criminals said something similar to him. Save yourself and us. 
It's hard to imagine that this one who dies on a cross is to be remembered by us as one whom we also call King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Christ the King. But I think that in this passage, we are reminded that we follow one who may have had all of the power that can be imagined in whatever language we might use about God, and yet who chooses, chose, not to use that power for his own benefit. Chose not to use that power for his own advantage, to protect his own life. On Sunday that we call Christ the King, or even just if we want to, the last Sunday after Pentecost, when we have these readings, I think we're given a number of sets of images and words and they contrast with one another, with each other, enough that we might be left struggling with the question of whom do we follow? Do we follow the shepherd who cares for our every need? Do we follow the one who is best described in the theological language? Do we follow the one who dies as a criminal? I find that there is a passage of scripture that is not on the list for today, which is helpful with all of this. It's a passage of scripture that we typically hear on Palm Sunday each year, and it comes from the letter to the Philippians, chapter 2. The author starts by saying, Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Well, that could be how we would understand the Jesus who is not seeking his own advantage and jumping down off the cross. He goes on to write, Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Um, the same mind when, though he was in the form of God, writes, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. Taking advantage of our power is not something we are called to do. But instead took the form of a servant, emptying himself, giving up, giving away the power that God had naturally given him, that he had as, as God's son. And instead, living in human form, he humbled himself. Perhaps one of the best images we would have of that from scripture is of the image that's included in John's gospel relative to the last night that Jesus was with his disciples. When after the meal we hear he stripped his clothes down and he got on his knees and he washed their feet as if he was their servant and said to them, so as I have done for you, so you ought to do for one another. Love one another. You know, sometimes people's last words are probably worth remembering. And in his last words, we hear him giving that command. Strip down the power, set it aside, serve one another, love one another. Well, this passage goes on to bring a conclusion to all of that. You know, proclaiming that Jesus was obedient to God's call, even to the point of death on a cross. It says, therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So in the sense that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, it might be said that Jesus lives and represents so many different dimensions of the invisible God as to give us that more complete picture than we would have if we cling only to one or another. I think that in a congregation like Christ Church, there are 
almost necessarily people who will have different favorite images of God, who would use naturally different language to describe their experience of God. And in congregations where that is the case, it's entirely possible for there to be disagreement once in a while. It's entirely likely that those in leadership positions as clergy, as vestry, and other places will run up against people who have different ideas about how things should happen. Does that happen here? No, I won't put you on the spot, no. If that was not true, I would think you were all pretending. Sometimes if we're able to listen to the faith that is in the heart of those with whom we share community and learn more about the image of God or of Jesus which um, inspires that other person, we're able to go into a place of relationship even though our natural human instincts might lead us in different kinds of directions. The words I've offered are not meant to be a statement to those who live with power that power is wrong. Jesus' example is more about how it is that we use the power that God's given us and when we set it aside and when we're engaged more in acts of service. We're not called to go and be criminals, but that's a pretty powerful image of Jesus remaining obedient to God rather than worrying about his own self. Jesus gives us an example of self-emptying, humble love. And that, as we seek to live it, puts us often in conflict with the structures and systems and sometimes even the people that we encounter in the communities where we live or in the places where we work or, yes, sometimes even in our churches. So I don't know that our job as followers of Jesus is to spend too much time trying to work towards uniformity, as in all being the same as one another. In fact, when the writer of the letter to the Philippians speaks to them of having the same mind that was in Christ, he precedes that by saying that they ought to strive for unity. And if you're not sure of the difference, listen a little bit, think about it a little bit over time this week. The difference between unity and uniformity. Unity would mean coming together across and in the midst of diversity. Uniformity would mean all marching to the same drummer and all doing things exactly the same way. That author doesn't call for uniformity, but for unity. As I travel around the diocese and get to be with congregations of all sizes, I, get the, I receive the blessing of seeing the ways that faithful people live their life on a daily basis. Um, Paul mentioned that I carried a staff in with me. It's a little different than normal. It's, it's, it's laying on the altar so it doesn't crash to the ground as it tends to do. Um, it's, it's bright stripes of color. Some people think, oh, it must be the Curcio cross. No. This cross, this, this staff was made as a gift to Bishop Daniel on his first visit with the people of Grace Church in Whiteville. It was taken as a stick from the forest and painted by, um, by Lisa Ritchie. And what most people don't see as I carry it in procession is that in gold ink written up and down the length of the stick are the names of each of the congregations of the diocese, at least at the time when it was made. There's been a little bit of change since then. 
I found it by accident in the chapel at Trinity Center, not knowing what it is, but as I pulled it out and asked people, I, I heard the story, and so I've been carrying it with me on Sundays for a while, and even to the odd ordination, as a representation of the reality that amidst all of the incredible differences between the congregations of this diocese, we are one body. In the same way as I experienced at the Lambeth Conference this summer, that whether we came from one part of the world or another, whether our faith was expressed in one set of words or another, whether our experience was like this or like that, at the heart we were followers of Jesus and we shared the body of Christ. Sometime you might hear me say more about my experience of Lambeth, but I gotta tell you one of the most powerful moments was when we said the Lord's Prayer together for the first time in Canterbury Cathedral. Like, I'm used to saying that with Spanish speakers and English speakers together, and it's kind of cool to have a couple of different languages, but imagine what it's like to have all of the languages of the world, almost without exception, represented in one place. And we all prayed the Lord's Prayer in the language of our hearts. It, it, it might have been, been the day of Pentecost again. It might have been that powerful moving of the Spirit that said to us, let go of all the needs you have to control how church works. Let me be there. Let me be there to unite you. Let me be there to bring you together. And so I heard stories. I, I, got, I managed to get COVID while I was there, so I was isolated in a dorm room for most of Lambeth. Yay. But I heard stories from friends who'd gone expecting that they were going to need to convince some African bishops that they had it wrong in their country. And expecting the African bishops were going to want to convince them of the same thing. Again, there's a lot more to that story. Don't, don't ever take that one as a simple story. But by the end of the week, um, they had exchanged pectoral crosses, the crosses that bishops wear. They had exchanged stories and they had reflected together on what it means to be a follower of, the Jesus, a follower of Jesus with these words, in my context. And so people could grow in relationship and in love and leave that other stuff to the side at least for a while. Friends, we are called to be that kind of body of Christ where we don't get stuck on all sorts of things that make us different. We don't argue about whether one picture of Jesus is better than another. But we seek the ways in which God's Spirit leads us and guides us and moves us forward. And we listen for the same in our sisters and brothers, our companions on the journey. It's good to be back with you. It's good to share life and worship with you and to be present with those who are going to be confirmed and received. Um, as Paul spoke with the children at the earlier service, um, I think he spoke a little bit about lifeguards or swimming instructors or something anyway, about that how I could certainly speak to it. And in this service, he said that which is in the middle, sure I could, I guess. But what might be, perhaps, as I said then, might better qualify me as bishop is that one of my first jobs was as a lifeguard and swimming instructor. Thank God I didn't have to do it a lot, but I knew what it would be to jump in the deep end and pull somebody out. I knew what it was to connect people with the life-saving care they would need if that was their reality. As church, we are that with and for one another. We are on this journey together, whether it's in times of splashing and joy in the shallow end or struggling to keep our head above water in the deep end. May God's Holy Spirit carry us forward this day and for the rest of our lives. Amen.